Why Psalms? The head, the heart, the hands, all of it making sure we're bringing ourselves before the Lord. I want you to picture that you're finding a quiet spot in your home, on vacation, maybe on the front porch, in the rocking chair, looking at the mountains. I'm just dreaming about what we're doing next week, all right? And you, you found a quiet spot. And you, you pick up your Bible, and it's, it's pretty big. You don't quite know where to turn. So you remember that Johnny said, we can read the day of the month. Today it would be one. Problem is, Johnny already preached Psalm 1, all right? So we could make it two for tomorrow. But I wanted to hold that. So let's pretend it's the third. It's July 3rd and you open your Bible and you read Psalm chapter 3. And as it begins, you're not quite sure what this Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, means. Not even sure it should really be Bible. Is that just a top note or is that inspired? So you, you go down to verse 1 and you read, O Lord. And you really don't even feel like you can go any further. Oh, Lord. I, I know you're there. I'm feeling so much pressure. I'm, I'm facing a problem that I don't know how to get around. Oh, I need you, Lord. I need you. Oh, Lord. Your heart is turning heavenward. And you realize the best thing you can do is just stop and humble yourself and cry out to him. Oh, Lord. Like the 18th century pastor, hymn writer said, come thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. Tune my heart. It's like I need to get myself in sync. Now those who are not followers of Christ have found all kinds of ways to describe finding your center. And, you know, I mean, you know, there, there are things that people say, but we know as followers of Christ that we're supposed to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, that we're to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. And so we come before him and we cry out, Oh, Lord, many are my foes. David said, I don't know, this may be one of those days when you don't have very many problems or one of those days when you got a lot of problems. But when the bottom falls out, some people fall apart. Others fall on their knees and cry out to God. So let's, let's back up a minute. Why, why was this thing written? What are, who are these many foes and where does all this come from? I, I don't know that you would necessarily, depending on your how you've been trained to do searches in the scripture. I'll tell you, if, if you don't know what to do, most of you are pretty hand, handy with Google when it comes to finding other things. And, and you'll be surprised how well a Google search will help you. Don't believe every source you read. 
because it all comes up as to who got it closer to the top, all right? But you could type in the word Absalom and then realize that you don't know how to spell it. And you could, you could keep typing it in and you could try to figure out, okay, so who is this guy that David is running from? David is running from. This, this doesn't really make any sense. Well, I, I won't take you through all of the passages. We, we won't even take time to go back into Samuel or try to read what was going on there. But I will tell you this. David had a grown son who grew angry from a sin in the family. He didn't talk to his father about it, I guess. He, and as he got angry, finally he was involved in a plot to kill his brother and he left. He ran. He hid. He was gone a long time. Absalom was. And so, let me make sure I, I got the right he on this, right? Okay. The son, Absalom, got mad, family sinned, killed in a plot to kill his brother, left. Gone for a long time. Finally, somebody said, you can come back, but you can't really talk to the king. So, it had been a while before he actually talked to the king. Finally, he came before King David, and they were trying to repair their relationship a little bit. And Absalom said, you know... The scripture records that there was no one more leader-like than Absalom. His build, his personality, the, the way he knew how to, to lead people, he, people just wanted to follow him. So he started trying to peel off the loyalty from David. And I want you just to hear this one verse out of 2 Samuel 15. In this manner listening to the people, solving their problems. And by the way, sometimes leaders can solve the problems in a way that's not a long-term solution, but make people feel good in the moment. And so he was, he was trying to get the people to feel good in ways that were not sustainable. And in this manner, he dealt with all of Israel who came to him for judgment. And Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. 2 Samuel 15, 6. So David's son who had fled and now returned, is stealing the people's hearts. Finally, the report comes to David, you got to get out of here. It's a coup. Might not have used that French word, but it, you, you got it, right? They're coming after you, and you need to leave. So he started working out how he was going to leave, and some people said, we want to be loyal to you. He said, no, maybe you can stay and listen and figure out what's going on and give me some reports. And so there was a lot of confusion, and David left, and he ran, and he hid from his own son. And the army that was raising up to follow his son to kill David. Now, if in fact, and most scholars, who am I to argue with people who know that much, most believe that this subscript that's given here really ought to be here because it's been there a long time throughout uh, Hebrew and Christian history, that that was the setting. Now read again. O oh Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. One more thing about David, and then we make sure we're applying it to us. They were saying that the anointing has gone off of David. He shouldn't be king anymore. God's hand's not on him. 
And so when David was starting to flee, I mean, I know this sounds really weird. He's the king and he's having to run from his son. He's trying to kill him and take over. When he starts to flee, they said, hey, well, we'll take the tabernacle and, and we'll take the Ark of the Covenant. We'll go with you. And David said, no, you guys take that back to where it belongs. And he said something pretty amazing. I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, if God is going to take care of me, he's going to take care of me. And I'm just going to have to trust this to the Lord. And it's almost like, may the best man win kind of emotion. But it's weird that he's, he doesn't want to kill his son. So he goes and he's hiding and he gets word about the armies that are coming. And it's in that context of great struggle over his own son that he writes these words many are they that are coming against me and they're saying of me there is no salvation from him for him in God now how would we deal with that probably we don't have a son quite like that but I will say there's nothing that causes a greater struggle than the depth of family conflict. You give birth to a child and yet the child doesn't have a relationship back with you. You have children that played together well and now they're grown and they won't speak to each other. I mean, just imagine the emotion in a father's heart and we reading, not having an army chasing us, but at times feeling like the world is crashing around us. I don't know how many of you are controllers. I, I don't like to think of myself that way. I'm a strategy guy, so maybe I'm trying to look ahead and even control. But whatever is facing you in trouble, one thing's been said about trouble. You're either in it or you're just coming out of it, or you're about to go into it. So I don't know where you are this morning, but you can read Psalm 3, and you can see trouble, and you can know that, okay, I need to, in my heart, know how to deal with trouble. Now, it's pretty cool that you can break this down, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, verses 7 and 8, okay? But before we leave verse 2, trying to get the scene of a struggling heart, wanting to trust in God. I want you to notice the little word at the end. I didn't read it purposely a moment ago. Selah. It's used about seven, over 70 times in Psalms. I'm, I'll let you count them if you want. But over 70 times in Psalms. And yet, one, two, three of them are right here. That's a pretty good ratio of 150 Psalms. What does this word mean? Well, some have argued that it's, uh, it's for the band. It means, okay, we're through with that song, and some of you are out of tune. <laughs> you, need, you need to get your instruments back. I mean, somebody hit a concert B-flat or whatever. You know, get, figure out a way to make us all get in tune. Could be true. But it seems to have come to maybe let there be a music interlude while we're not singing and us think about what we just sang, or even further than that, let's just stop. Be still and know that he is God. 
and let's think about what we just read. I would just say to you, if you're going to become a psalm reader with us, when you see this Selah, stop and read what you just said because it's put in there to make you think about this, meditate on this. So I think I've painted a good enough scene for us to know that we're in trouble, right? All right, so we're sitting before the Lord. We're, we're reading Psalm 3. We take another sip of coffee. You can have a coffee cup on your way out if you want. We'll be glad to give you one to read the Psalms with us. And you stop and you say, okay, people don't even believe God's working in my life. God, are you for me or against me? I mean, you're, you're struggling. And then Psalm 3, verse 3, everything turns. But you... Oh, Lord, but you, I, I hope in your time before the Lord that you learn how to have some of those moments where it all stops and you say, but you, O oh Lord, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. Corey Ten Boone, the famous lady who suffered in concentrate, not the concentration camps said, in the depths of despair, we find that God is deeper. A friend of mine said, when he was dying of cancer, I've been to the bottom and it's solid. You can trust God. David is at the bottom and then he turns and he says, but you, O Lord. Now, I, I've got to stop one more time and tell you what to read for really in all of your Bible, but especially here in the Psalms, you see the little word Lord, probably in any translation you're looking at, it's all caps. Why is it all caps? The translators are trying to get us to see that they just translated the word Yahweh, the word for the covenant-keeping Jehovah God. And so David says, in the midst of his trouble, but you Oh, Lord, my covenant-keeping God, the one who came after me, I didn't come after you. And you called me from being a little shepherd boy, and you anointed me to kill a giant, and, and you, Lord, put me in this job that I didn't pursue, but you, oh, Lord, are a shield about me. I mean, we can't just walk away from Ephesians 6 that fast, can we? I mean, we just saw that the armor of God, we have a shield of faith, and what do we do with it? We hold it up to counter the fiery darts of the evil one who's putting fear in our mind and who's trying to control us in our emotions. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. Then he says... You are my glory. Uh, I still don't know why that's there. <laughs> I tried my best to figure it out. The word glory means the revealed presence of God, literally. That's just the best way to substitute that in your mind when you're reading. The revealed presence of God. He says here, you're my glory. You're, you're the one that demonstrated that you were God in my life 
and any praise or anything that has come my way, it's, it, you're the source of it, Lord. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. But catch this next word. You're the lifter of my head. Maybe not so much in America because of our prideful culture. <laughs> but in most cultures around the world, there's some kind of acknowledgement. There's a little bit of a sense of bowing. There's a little bit of a sense of, I, I defer to you. I don't know if you've ever noticed a handshake sometimes with a hand over here in other cultures. There's a sense of serving and deference that's coming in that. But David says he, he's fallen on his face. He's in anguish before the Lord. And you can search this phrase in Scripture. Meaning, okay, that's enough repentance. I've, I've heard your heart. Look at me. Think about God saying, you're right to get on your face. You're right to confess your sin. You're, you're right to cry over the mess you're in. But that's enough. I, I've heard you. Now, look at me. I'm with you in this. What an incredible phrase. The lifter of my head. Now, I think by definition, if your head's going to be lifted, it had to be bowed down ahead of time, right? I mean, there's, there's some cause and effect going on here. You've already humbled yourself before the Lord. You have bowed your head before him. You've acknowledged that he is king and you're not. And you've called him Yahweh, Jehovah God. And now you're saying, you're a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the one that lifts my head. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Think about this for a minute. God always answers our prayer. You know that, right? He always answers our prayer. Every single time. He answers, no, you need to grow. He answers, no, you need to go slower. He answers, no, you're really asking the wrong thing. You really don't want me to give you that. Or he answers, yes. David said, I cried to the Lord, and I know he answered me. Now, if he's still fleeing from Absalom, he doesn't know yet what the answer is going to be. But he knows the Lord answered him. And he says, he answered me from his holy hill. We are not like Muslims who turn and pray in one direction toward what we claim to be the source of our religion. But David was saying, I understand God's meeting place and I've directed my prayer to him. And the parallel to us as followers of Christ say, I understand the cross, that God accepts me because the cross. I came to the cross of Jesus. I got on my face and admitted I was a sinner. 
Now, maybe you didn't do any of this physically, but you did it figuratively if you're a follower of Christ. I came to the cross. I acknowledged my need. I told God I could not save myself. He is the lifter of my head, and I know he's hearing me because I'm praying, not in my goodness, but through Jesus. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I cried to you, O Lord, and you heard my prayer, and you answered me from your holy hill, Selah. Think about that. And then he says, verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, why is that a big deal? I can tell you lots of reasons it's a big deal. One, he's talking about he had the ability to rest even in the midst of a coming battle. Yeah, he had some good guys with him that were watching over the camp, but his trust wasn't in those who were taking the night watch. His trust was in the Lord. Now, KK's not here, but I have to pick on her at least one, once a sermon, okay? Uh, I, I wish that she were here to defend herself, but historically in our marriage, I've always been able to sleep immediately, and she hasn't. It's even worse right now, but we won't go into that, all right? But we would get in bed, and light would be off, and she'd start talking. And I'd say, well, good night, honey. And then she'd keep talking. Now, you do know the lights are out, right? And she would say, well, when I was a little girl, I slept in the room of my grandmother. She, a uh, tiny little house, she said she slept in a baby bed when she was in the first grade and had to put her feet through the flats, all right? But she was in the, in the room. She said, my grandmother would just let me talk. She'd say, do you, as long as you close your eyes, you can talk. And... I'd say, well, I didn't sleep in a room with my grandmother. And, uh, and would you talk? I think I'm supposed to listen. And so, good night, honey. Good night, honey. Good night, honey. Now, I tell her it's a clear conscience that lets me go right to sleep. She sometimes says, don't you be such a smart aleck about your walk with God, you know. I could sleep right now probably. I could probably lay down here and let you guys carry on, and I could my, hear my kids over here acknowledging. I can go to sleep, all right? But when you wake up, remember, we're, we're, we're sitting somewhere before the Lord quietly. We got the psalm open to Psalm 3, and we think, okay, Lord, you let me sleep last night, and I woke up for one reason and one reason alone. You sustained me you could just pray that by the way can I encourage you when you read the Psalms don't read them for mileage read them for meat okay don't try to read the whole Psalm just so you can prove you did if God stops you at some point and whether or not there's a Selah there there's a Selah there for you and he's stopping you and he's talking to you and he's encouraging your heart then just stop and think about it a while. I went to sleep because you gave me rest, Lord. 
I woke up for one reason. You sustain me. And I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And come on, it's not silence for us before thousands of people after us. But it is us not being afraid and trusting in the Lord. And I can take it a step further. The scripture says he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on him. I can take it to the New Testament. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I lay down. I went to sleep. I woke up for one reason, Lord. You sustained me. So verse 7, two more verses, one more little section here. Arise, O Lord. There's a big theological term that explains viewing and interacting with God like he's a human. We don't need to know that term. But you, you do need to understand that in Scripture, because we're just people, we talk to God like he's people. And, and we, we envision our interaction with him like we're talking to a person, never diminishing his eternal glory. But this whole idea of arise, O Lord, words used when the people of God went into battle. And I looked it up. Numbers chapter 10, verse 35 and so it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. David knew his Bible. He knew the ways of God. And he understood, though he had left the ark there, that his call on God here was because of the covenant of God there. And he says, rise up, O Lord, and you deal with this because I can't. That's a really good prayer. Lord, I need you to deal with something I can't deal with. I've tried. It's amazing how many times it takes us trying before we pray the right prayer. Lord, I need you to deal with this. Rise up. And conquer what's before me. As I thought about this asking God to conquer, obviously we think about Jesus who conquered sin and death and the grave. And, and my mind went to this painting I saw on my first overseas trip. It was in Germany and it was so long ago it was in the Eastern Bloc. It was still communist Germany. We were traveling through Germany, and we came to this place, and our guide told us this is the very first Protestant altar painting. Now, you know what 
you grew up Baptist, you probably don't. Altar painting, the, the big painting at the center of the cathedral or whatever it was, and how they would use stained glass and paintings around to tell Bible stories. But this particular one was the first Protestant one. And I, I'd love to tell you more about it, even show it to you on the screen someday. But I just thought about that picture for a minute because it had in it Jesus on the cross in the foreground, and the, the painter had built such dimensions to the painting. And behind Jesus on the cross in the foreground were all of these pre-shadowings of Christ from the Old Testament. Pictures that displayed what Jesus was going to do when he came. And one of them was the foreshadowing of that very first promise in the book of Genesis when God said he was going to send through the seed of woman the one who would stand on the head of the serpent. And there was a picture of a snake with Jesus triumphantly standing on it. And I thought as I read this, Arise, O Lord, the one who conquers that I need to conquer the trouble in my life. The great hymn writer said, and though this world with devils fill doth threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Arise, O Lord. Capital letters. Yahweh, covenant-keeping God. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Strike all of my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. There's that awkward prayer Johnny didn't want to pray for his enemies, all right? But verse 8 is one of the most incredible capsulations of our relationship with God when it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what I pray when I see that. There's nothing I can do to save myself, never could. There's nothing I can do to make myself right in your sight. I never could. There's no goodness in me that you would want me, oh God. But you did. And you do. Because Jesus proved to me when he took my sin and was raised from the dead that you have made a way for me to know you. So I pray I come to the Father through Jesus the Son and I give you the glory for great things you have done and Lord let your blessings be on your people. I couldn't figure out how to, how to end this sermon. If you, if you thought at all about Absalom and you don't know the story, you may wonder what happened. David told his makeshift army, go and fight, but be kind to the boy. Be kind to my son. But Absalom died 
in battle. When David heard that his son had died, even though they were trying to say, but you've been delivered, David cried. He, he hurt for the sense of loss that you would expect a father to. And then they came to David and said, David, king, sir, <laughs> you're going to discourage the army. They're, they're going to think that your son's more important than the whole nation. They're going to think that you're saying your son, it, should they have lost? What, what, what did you ask him to do? And so the struggle of a leader, he had to get up and lead them, thanking them for winning the battle, still grieving over the loss of his son. Maybe next time you read Psalm 3 and you see this struggle with David, you'll know that it was a very real cry out to the Lord. So this morning I ask you, would you be willing to bow your head and let him lift it? You understand what I'm saying? Would you be willing to bow before him, acknowledge your need, and let God take you in a covenant-keeping kind of love and gently lift your chin and say, look at me. It's all right. I've made a way for you to be forgiven and I can handle your stuff. Let's pray together. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about us. You can handle the fiery darts thrown my way. If there's anything good or any hope, you're the glory. You're the one that lifts my head. So, Lord, I bow before you and I give you my stuff. <laughs> I give you my worries. I give you my concerns. I give you my troubles. I know that I can't fix them. I want to do my part with integrity, but I don't want to do emotionally like I've got to control it all. So, Lord, I bow before you. And in your time, through what Jesus did, lift my head not to walk in pride or arrogance. But lift my head to walk in humble dependence. Lord, I pray this prayer in Jesus' name.